0: Turning your Bibles to Acts chapter 15, Acts chapter 15, we'll be, in a moment, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 21. Acts 15 is perhaps the most uh, pivotal chapter in the entire New Testament, arguably one of the most pivotal chapters in the entire Bible. It's an, uh, an account of church history, but it's an account of a critical moment in church history a moment in which nothing less than the gospel itself was at stake. We're going to see that the church is going to gather, the leadership of the church is going to gather in Jerusalem to wrestle with a difficult and persistent controversy within the early church. It's a controversy that continues to plague the church 2,000 years later. It takes different forms from generation to generation. It takes on a a different look in different places. But the essential aspect of this controversy continues to haunt the church today. And so it's an, an important chapter, one that is relevant to the church at all times and in all places. And we praise God that he preserved an account of these things from the early church remind us that at the Shore Harvest Presbyterian Church, we believe the Bible to be the only infallible rule for faith and for practice. And that means that if you want to know what the gospel is really about, and if you want to know the right way to handle disagreements and dissension in the church, then we must know God's word. And so I invite you now to hear the word of God from Acts chapter 15. But some men came down from Judea, And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood." For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. Let's pray and ask his guidance in understanding it. <clears throat> Lord, let us understand the significance of this uh, passage, of the meeting that took place so long ago. Let us uh, uh, comprehend the truth that was uh, decided, that was recognized in this council, and let us adhere to it today. Let us also see the example that was set before us for how and when and where to uh, uh, conduct disagreements and how to resolve them, and that we would do so in a like manner today. We lift this up in Christ's name. Amen. The text before us is referred to, as an account of what's referred to as the Council of Jerusalem. A council in the sense that there was a gathering of people who came together and debated and disputed and discussed a, a matter of disagreement. And we're going to take a look at what's going on here. We're going to ask ourselves three questions. First, what did the Jerusalem, why did the Jerusalem Council happen? What led up to it? Why did this take place? Place. We are then going to look at what actually happened at the council meeting, and then we are going to finally consider uh, what it was that came out of that council meeting, what was the significance or importance of that council meeting. What led up to it? Why did it happen? What occurred in the meeting? And what came out of the meeting? That's what we're going to look at this morning. First of all, what led up to this meeting? Why did it occur? What happened that these men needed to gather in this way. Well, we must be reminded that, that the, the issue being debated and discussed here is an issue that has been one that has been bubbling in the church from its earliest days. This is not a new controversy. It's, uh, it's morphed a little bit, it's been uh, nuanced a little bit but it's the same essential issue that goes right back to the very earliest days of the church. You'll recall that in Acts 6, the diaconate was established. And why was it established? Because there was a dispute among those Jews that were Hebraic Jews and those who, that were Hellenic Jews, those that were more like the Greek culture. And a dispute arose over the distribution of food to their widows, and they established the diaconate to minister to those widows. But at the core of the, the issue was this divide along cultural lines. Within the body of Christ, they should have been united around the the, the faith, the doctrine that held them together, but they were divided culturally. Now, they were Jews versus Jews at that time, but we see the hints of those who were more Jewish versus those who weren't Jewish enough. Then in Acts 8, we get the account of Philip going to the uh, Samaritans. And what do we see there? That, that the church in Jerusalem was skeptical that Samaritans, these, it's not, they're not just Jews that are too much like the world. They're impure Jews. They're half-breeds. They're Jews that have intermarried with the world. Surely they can't come to the Lord. And so when there's a report that comes back to Jerusalem that there have been converts in Samaria, they send uh, John to go, Peter and John to go check it out and see if this is legitimate. There was this controversy along cultural lines. And then in Acts 11, Peter returns to Jerusalem. Having ministered to the house of Cornelius, he returns to Jerusalem, and he is immediately beset by the same controversy you ate with gentiles you went into the home of gentiles you have it's one thing for the for the hellenic jews to be in our church okay it's another thing for samaritans half breed jews to be but you're mixing with outright gentiles that can't be and this controversy along these cultural lines has been bru- uh, 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 Brewing for quite some time. So that in Acts 6, Acts 8, Acts 11, we see these same issues playing out. Then when we get here, we saw at the close of Acts 14 last time, the, the, uh, kind of a summary of the ministry of Paul and Barnabas, the, the mission of missions, we said. And really what's going on here, we notice this passage, it's called, you know, it's a reference to the Jerusalem Council, but it actually opens in Antioch. These the first verses, the first three verses are really a transition from chapter 14. Verse one opens actually in Antioch. So what's going on here? Well, last time we saw that the mission of missions, the summary of what Paul and Barnabas did on the first missionary journey, was really boiled down to three things: uh, uh, evangelism, get them gospel; discipleship, get them growing; and church uh, participation, get them going. We saw those three things in Acts 14, and the, the, the question that's brewing here, what's opening up this passage, is a debate about what that looks like. It's not that anybody is outright disagreeing with Paul and Barnabas did, but rather they're saying, well, let me, let's talk about what that should look like. Particularly this issue, the, the second two points. What does it look like to get them growing? What does discipleship look like? And what does it mean to get them plugged into the church, to get them going? How, should, how does that play out in the church? And so the, the problem being faced here is not a new problem, but rather it's this cultural issue. You see, there's an argument being made that for them to join the church, for them to grow in their faith, discipleship, for them to be plugged into the church, get them going, they got to become like, us. And so we see at the opening here that Paul and Barnabas take this issue on in Antioch. They confront it. Now I want to stop there and give us a little bit of history. If you turn over in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2, uh, uh, we'll be starting uh, verse, what verse are we starting at? I think it's verse 14. Galatians 2 um, I'm sorry, uh, 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 we'll start at verse uh, 12. Um, <clears throat> this controversy, uh, uh, Galatians 2.12, seems to be overlapping what we're seeing at the beginning of Acts 15.1. So Acts 15.1 says that certain men came down and, and stirred up some controversy in the church. Notice how Paul says it in Galatians 2.12. Uh, For before certain men came from James... This appears to be that uh, a reference to the same party coming into Antioch before certain men came from James. Uh, he was uh, 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 he Peter was eating with the Gentiles, but uh, uh, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So uh, uh, what we got going on? Uh, Galatians, by the way, was written probably most likely while Paul was in Antioch. So at the close of that first missionary journey, he's he spends some time uh, the. Into chapter 14, it says, no little time. He spent no little time. In other words, he spent a long time with them. Sometime there, he writes back to the churches in Galatia, the, the book of Galatians. So apparently, while they're in Antioch, the, this uh, chapter 15, verse 1 occurs. These men come from Jerusalem and stir up this controversy, saying they've got to be circumcised. And Paul uh, and, uh, addresses that. Now for a time we don't know when or exactly how Peter arrived in Antioch but apparently Peter was there and for a time Peter and Barnabas fall into this trap of saying they've got to be become Jews first. And Paul addresses it and we see him addressing it there in Galatians chapter 2. So that's the nature of the controversy. That's what's leading up to the Jerusalem councils. So let's take a look now at what actually, so we, we have an account that they are sent by the Antioch church. There's a debate, there's discussion, there's dispute. Uh, uh, the, this is classic ancient understatement. There was no little debate. Uh, that means there was a big argument. That's really what that means. That's why that's why it's worded that way. There's a big argument going on in Antioch, and finally the church in Antioch says we can't settle this ourselves. We need to appeal to the wider church. We need to get other men of wisdom and of knowledge of the word of God involved in this discussion. Now it's not the point of this sermon, but it is one of the reasons that we as Presbyterians stay connected to our fellow churches. We don't, there's no sense, even here in the earliest church, that, the, that any one church ever went alone in these things or kind of went its own way. There's no renegade church. There's no Lone Ranger church. We saw last time there was no Lone Ranger Christian, but there's no Lone Ranger church either. Rather, the church in Antioch, the mission-sending church, the base for world missions, says we need help with this. And they appealed to Jerusalem to see it settled. So Paul and Barnabas, they travel through uh, 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 Samaria and Phoenicia, stop along the way. It's uh, uh, quite a long journey. It would have taken them several days. And so they stop at different churches along the way to get some lodging. And they're sharing with those churches the account of all that happened on their first missionary journey. And then they arrive in Jerusalem. And let's take a look at what actually happens at the council itself. So we, we pick up there in... Uh, 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 verse 4, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. First of all, we're gonna, we see Luke's commentary on this. Luke says that it was God who had done these things with them. Luke's already kind of telling us where this is headed, that their, that their efforts, their work on that missionary journey were uh, in accord with God's word and will. But then verse 5, some believers, now that's an important note, these are not uh, uh, those coming in from the outside. These are not uh, uh, unbelievers. When Paul addresses the issue to the Galatian churches, he, he calls them uh, false brothers, but that's a different group. That's not the church in Jerusalem. That's those who traveled to Galatia to attack those churches. Luke's assessment here is that these are authentic believers, these are brothers and sisters in the Lord. Some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees rose up and... We don't often see the word party and Pharisees go together. It's kind of a humorous little uh, combination of words there. Uh, rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to, and to order them to keep the law of Moses. What's going on? What is the position of the Pharisees within this council and within this debate? Well, you see, basically they're making this argument. That growing and going, discipleship and church membership, means that they should look like Jews. They should look like us. If they're truly growing and they're truly going, if they're truly being discipled and truly connecting to the, the, the true church, they ought to look like us. How do they arrive at that conclusion? Well, first of all, they say we are believers. We know we were here at Pentecost. We know that we have the Holy Spirit. We know that we're believers. And if we're believers and we look like this, then it must necessarily be true that this is what it means to look like as a believer. The logic is flawed, it doesn't hold up to scrutiny. For it assumes things that don't necessarily work backwards. Just because one set of believers look this way doesn't mean that you can then model after that and figure out how all believers should look. It's, it's flawed logic. But that's how they think. And by the way, that's how we think. It's amazing to me when I talk to people who have left one of the churches that I've been a part of at some point in the past, I connect with them through social media or whatever mechanism. They come back for a visit. They've moved to a new place. They've retired and gone south, whatever's happened. And you ask them, have you found a new church? Where are you plugged in? And I'm saddened by how often I hear this kind of response. Well, it's just been really hard to find a church like my old church. That's not the goal. Your old church is not the definer of what church is. Those who are Christians might behave a certain way in a certain place in a certain time and might look at, but that doesn't mean that all Christians have to be like that. Your goal is not to find a church like your old church. Your goal is to find a church rooted in the word of God and to recognize what are the essential markers of that and what are not. Dear brothers and sisters, if the Lord ever calls you away from shore harvest, don't go looking for a new shore harvest. Go looking for a church rooted in the word of God. Looking for a church that will declare the true gospel of the true Christ from the true God. That's what we ought to be looking for. Not a church that looks like us. We do this sort of thing with other stuff. You know, if they're really, if they were really believers, if they were really uh, plugged into the Word of God, if they were truly growing in the faith, they would dress like us. They would sing songs like us. Their order of worship would be like ours. And none of that is valid. They would have my view of. Uh, 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 of some of the uh, uh, undefined things. They would have my view of alcohol consumption. They would have my view of tobacco use. They would have my view of public school versus home school. They would have my view on fill in the blank. And we make ourselves the definers of what it means to be true disciples of the Lord. And that's what this party of the Pharisees was doing. They were saying, we are Christians, and therefore Christians ought to look like us. You know, one of the other things that they were doing is they were saying, our position is biblical. You notice the wording there, that they ought to follow the the tradition of Moses, the commands of Moses. They're appealing to the scriptures. They had their verses. They were... Uh, Now, Luke gives us such a summary version of this council that he doesn't tell us exactly which passages they appealed to, but they're clearly appealing to the scripture, for they're appealing to Moses. And Moses wasn't physically with them, but rather his writings were with them. The scriptures were with them. So he can envision a situation where some of them are saying, well, you know the account of uh, Zipporah and Moses didn't circumcise his own sons and the angel of the Lord was going to come and kill him and Zipporah had to circumcise the sons. You see how important circumcision is. Had she not done that, they would have died. They were saved by circumcision. You know the account of Joshua taking the people right before they cross the Jordan and go into the promised land. Leadership has been passed from Moses to Joshua Moses had neglected circumcision with his own sons, and then he neglected circumcision while they were wandering in the wilderness. The whole new generation that had grown up in the wilderness, none of them were circumcised. Joshua stops and says, let's all be circumcised before we cross over into the land. And they would have had their verses to say, do you see how essential circumcision is? It's a must for the people of God. And if these Gentiles are going to call themselves Christians, if they're going to call themselves believers in the true Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, they've got to be Jews. They've got to come to the covenant relationship the way we do. That's the position of the Pharisees, the position of the dissenters. And it is a position we take far too often. They've got to be like us. I know I'm in the faith, so I know this is what a Christian can look like, so it's just safe if all Christians look like this. And we see three voices, powerful, important voices, speak out in this council. We see first the voice of Peter. And he says that, that position that contradicts the Holy Spirit. And he reminds them of how things unfolded originally with the Gentiles. Now, in Galatians, Paul says that he was the apostle to the Gentiles and that Peter was the apostle to the Jews. But that doesn't mean that neither one of them ever uh, uh, crossed over and did anything else. Paul himself goes into synagogues at every stop. He ministers to Jews on a routine basis. And we see that Peter had a ministry, it may have been an abbreviated one, but he had a ministry among Gentiles. And Peter says, do you not understand? Here I am, the guy who is the apostle to the Jews, but I myself was the first one the Lord chose to minister to Gentiles. And do you not remember what happened? I went to Cornelius' house, and he received the Holy Spirit. Was it after he was circumcised? No. He wasn't even baptized. The Holy Spirit came because the Holy Spirit recognized true faith in Cornelius. Because the Holy Spirit had worked true faith in Cornelius. And Peter says, do you understand that at Pentecost we received the Holy Spirit as a mark that we were truly in the church, truly a part of the family of God, and the Gentiles got that same mark. He says, if your view is right, that they've got to be circumcised and got to obey the customs of Moses, then the Holy Spirit got it wrong. For he went into their lives. Peter goes on in verse 10 and says something amazing. Look at verse 10. Look closely at what Peter says there. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Peter says this. You're pointing to yourselves as all, you know, the, 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 the model and the example of the way things ought to be. You're Pharisees. You're zealous for the law of Moses. You, you are. Uh, 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 adamant that it be kept. But you can't keep it. Our fathers haven't kept it. We don't keep it. We're not able to bear the weight of this law. So if you're going to stand there, and this is the reason he talks about tempting God. Why are you tempting God? Do you really want to hold God to that? Because if we hold God to that's the criteria that have got to be used, then we're all going to hell. We are all equally damned. Because we've never kept the law. And what does he go on to say there in verse 11? Uh, 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 But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Peter says, my only hope is in Jesus. My only hope is in the grace that he offers. Yes, I'm a Jew. Yes, I abide by the customs of Moses. Yes, I follow the dietary laws. Yes, I do the... But that's never been the basis of my salvation. And that's what you're making it out to be. The Pharisees stand up and say, if they're going to be saved, they've got to be like us. They've got to keep the law of Moses. They've got to be circumcised. They've got to obey all the customs. They've got to become Jews. And Peter says, that's in direct conflict with the Holy Spirit's view of things. For he entered Cornelius's family when none of that was true. We see then Paul, and, and, and it's interesting, Luke is, you know, obviously Luke's a big fan of the Apostle Paul, the whole rest of the book is going to be focused on the Apostle Paul, but whatever source Luke had for this council appears not to have been a source that paid much attention to Paul. For he, Here we know Paul to be a very gifted orator, a very gifted preacher and teacher. In fact, we've seen that the the, the unbelievers themselves recognize his gift. They called him Hermes, the messenger God. And yet we have nothing of what he said in this meeting. But rather what we see there is that he talked about the miracles. What is the uh, uh, account there in verse 12? And the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Basically, the argument is this. It's an argument we saw in our New Testament reading from Galatians. So the book of Galatians, Paul penned Galatians probably just a few months before this council met. It's fresh in his head. That letter has just gone out. And in that letter, he said, no one is saved by the works of the law. Rather, we're justified by grace through faith. And now we stand, he stands. Oh, and, and, and by the way, what he, in, in Galatians two? How does Paul uh, uh, say it? Go back. If you uh, should have told you to keep your thumb in Galatians two, but flip back over to Galatians chapter two and look down at verses uh, uh, nineteen uh, uh, through twenty-one. Uh, um. So while we have no account of exactly what Paul said in the meeting, we know full well where Paul stands on the issue, for this is what he wrote just a short time before the meeting. Now in Galatians uh, uh, chapter 1, Paul testifies that he received his gospel, his version of the gospel, if you will, from Jesus himself on the road to Damascus. So Paul says, you know, Peter has said, you're in conflict with the Holy Spirit. Paul says, you're in conflict with the Father and the Son. For I received my gospel from the Son himself. He stopped me on the way to Damascus. He told me what the gospel looks like. And by the way, the Father intervened to validate it. That's why in Acts 15, what we see is Paul and Barnabas recounting the miracles that had been done through them. Remember that throughout the book of Acts, miracles are God's mark upon his messengers. And so Paul and Barnabas are saying, you want to know that we got it right? Look at how God supported our work. Look at how God validated our message. Look at all the miracles he worked. One of the interesting studies in the book of Acts is to take all the miracles of Peter and put them in one column. And then put all the miracles of Paul in the next column. And assuming that both did many other miracles that Luke just simply doesn't record, it's stunning to note those two columns are virtually identical. Paul is recorded as having done exactly the same set of miracles that Peter had done. Why? Because he is an equal apostle to Peter. His message is the equivalent of Peter's, and God is validating him. The party of the Pharisees has said that to become believers, to become part of the church, to to be uh, properly discipled and to be plugged into the church, they've got to become like us. And Peter says, that's in disagreement with the Holy Spirit. He entered the life of Cornelius when he looked nothing like you. And Paul steps up and says, that's in contradiction to what the son himself told me on the road to Damascus, Galatians, and that's in contradiction to how the father validated me through miracles. There in Acts 15, 12. And finally... James speaks up. And we pick up James in verse 13. After they finished speaking, Barnabas and Paul, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. And there's a number of interesting things to note there about James. First of all, he refers to Peter by his uh, Aramaic name, Simeon. Now this meeting was probably being conducted in Greek, for it is unlikely that those who came down from Antioch would have known Aramaic. It is highly improbable. Greek was the lingua franca of the, uh, of the age and of the area. And uh, there's a, a lot of evidence to suggest even the relatively uh, poor fishermen from Galilee, because of their need to conduct business in that world, would have known at least rudimentary Greek. And so the meeting is occurring in Greek, but James doesn't use Peter's Greek name. He uses his Hebraic name, his Jewish name, if you will, and calls him Simeon. And the point is in stark contrast. In a moment, James is going to say that God has called a people for himself from the Gentiles. And so there's this contrast between this person of God, Peter, and the people of God from the Gentiles. But there's also a contrast between the, 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 the nature of the way this meeting is playing out. It's skewing toward those who are in favor of the Gentiles. But James says, let's not forget that we are, we are Jews. This is not a biased meeting. This is not a meeting of Gentiles deciding for Gentiles. Simeon is a brother Jew. Peter is one of us. And look where he stands. Look at the position he has taken. And so James addresses the group, and he tells them, uh, he, he makes a judgment. It says there that, you know, he, he, uh, it is my judgment. Well, uh, sorry, I'm ahead of myself. First, he says, Peter's in agreement with the, the, the uh, prophets, So Peter has said, listen, this is what the Holy Spirit revealed by the way he conducted himself. Paul says, this is what the Son revealed on the road to Damascus. And this is what the Father revealed by working miracles through me. And now James says, and this is what the Bible has revealed on this subject. There is this uh, uh, appeal to revelation. Each of these men is appealing not to their own uh, opinion, not to their own feelings about it, but each appeals to revelation from God. That's what we call the Bible. And James points to the prophet Amos, our Old Testament reading, and says, Amos foretold this, that when the house of David was rebuilt, remember, Jesus is a descendant of David. He is the eternal king who will reign on the throne of David. And James says, now that the house of David is being rebuilt, the tent of David is being rebuilt, Amos says that in that day, those from all the nations will come and seek the Lord. This, what Peter has said, is in keeping with what the prophets had foretold. Then in verse 19, James says, Therefore my judgment is that we should. And then he goes on to explain, and and we're going to look more closely at that next week. But well, first I want you to understand, it's not as though James just made a ruling all by himself. And in fact, what we're going to see down in verse 22 <clears throat> is that the rest of the, uh, the gathering, the apostles, the elders, and the church who were all gathered there, are going to sign on. They're going to get on board with James's ruling. A better way to think of this than, than James making a declaration, this is the way it is. That's really not what's happening here. Rather, James, it's kind of the equivalent of making a motion in a meeting. James is making the motion. He's framing up the way he thinks, he sees things. And then in verse 22, everybody else says, I'm in agreement with that motion. I'm on board with that. And one of the things you know about parliamentary procedure, the moment the body approves that motion, it no longer belongs to the mover. It belongs to the body. And now this is a decision of the church, not of James. We have the party of the Pharisees. Saying that if they're going to be disciples and if they're going to be plugged into the church if they're going to grow and go that means they ought to end up looking like us. And Peter appeals to the revelation from the Holy Spirit and says, no that wasn't the case with Cornelius. And Paul appeals to the revelation of Jesus Christ and says, no, that wasn't the gospel I was given on the road to Damascus. And Paul and Barnabas point to the, the uh, revelation from God the Father who gave them, uh, validated them by the miracles. He worked among them, with them, and says, no, that's not. God approved the, the message we're preaching. And now James says, no, that view is not in accord with the scriptures. So what do we get from the Jerusalem Council? What comes out of it? Well, there's a lot. And we're going to look at a third important aspect of this next week. But for this morning, I want us to consider two things that come out of this. First of all, what is the gospel? What What is the heart and soul of the gospel? If you boil it down, where is it? And it's in Christ alone. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's what the Jerusalem council says. That we can add nothing else on to the gospel. This controversy that arose over what happened in the first missionary journey. Paul and Barnabas are out there, the mission of missions. They're out there going, get them gospel, get them growing, get them going. And these others are going, well, except that's not what that looks like. You've got to understand what that's supposed to look like. And the council says, but if you add those things to the growing and the going, you have undermined the gospel itself. It's not about them looking like Jews. It's not about them being like you and me. It's about the work the Lord is doing in their lives by the power of the gospel. And the gospel is the power to save alone. And The council says we can add nothing to that. We cannot uh, uh, tweak that refine that, we cannot massage that, we cannot improve upon it. The council says the thing we have got to grasp is that salvation is through Jesus alone. Not Jesus and circumcision, not Jesus and the customs of Moses, not Jesus and wearing the ties that I wear on Sunday morning, not Jesus and singing the hymns that I sing, not Jesus and having a liturgy like my church's liturgy, But Jesus alone saves. And the second thing we get from the Jerusalem Council is a a, a, a roadmap, a model, a template for how churches ought to wrestle with the most difficult and serious issues. We confront those issues, as Paul and Barnabas did in Antioch. We then seek the counsel of others, as this church appealed to Jerusalem. And in the end, we look for wise men who will themselves be rooted in the revelation of God. Peter and Paul and James did not offer up their opinions or their feelings or their thoughts on these matters. They appealed to God. And with the wisdom that God had given them, they showed how what they understood applied to this situation. Brothers and sisters, do not ever try to walk the Christian life alone. For it will always lead to error. We must be willing to submit to the oversight and the guidance of those who are wiser than we are. Who know the word of God better than we know it. Who have spent more time with it. Who have by their lives borne out their love for it. And who can lead us to understand it? The Jerusalem Council met to wrestle with one of the most challenging issues the church had ever faced. And when they did so, they gave us a model for resolving controversy. Coming together. Coming together for discussion and debate and argument. But coming together. And in the end, they gave us a simple gospel that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. Let us never lose sight of that. Oh, we're not done. They're going to have more to say. and We're going to take that up next week. And we're going to see what, come, what came next. But we cannot move on until we own that essential truth. It is by grace, through faith, in Jesus, that there is any hope of salvation. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for preserving an account of the Jerusalem Council. Thank you for these men, Peter and Paul and James, who, who stood up and took a stand for the truth, who took a position and argued for the, the centrality of grace in Jesus, through Jesus, as our only hope of salvation. Lord, let us never modify that message. Do not allow us to add anything to the message of Jesus. It is not Jesus and the way I like to do things. It is not Jesus and my cultural identity. It is not Jesus and my preference for good works. It is Jesus who saves. We offer this prayer in his name. Amen.